Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Sam Ehrlich, the wine director of the Blue Ribbon Restaurants in New York. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well, Levy. How are you? Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. From this area originally. You grew up in New York. I did. I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, we lived on the Upper West Side until uh, I was three. And uh, then we moved to Flatbush where, you know, I was walking up and down the strip with my resume and dropping it off. And that was, uh, Blue Ribbon was the first callback I got. And I have to confess, you know, at that point, I mean, you know, Blue Ribbon had been open in the city for 11 years. And the Park Slope restaurant, which had opened in 2001. I mean, by the time I started there, it had already been open for two years. But I didn't know anything about it. I had zero clue. You know, when we went to restaurants when I was a kid, back before there was anything else on Fifth Avenue, there was a restaurant called Cucina, which was on Fifth. And it was there for a good long time. I mean, it had to have been there for a solid 15, 20 years before it closed. And it was one of, at the time... When I was a kid, eight, nine years old, that was where we went for sort of big family occasions. You know, my family were all born in October. So oftentimes as kids, we would go for one big kind of birthday celebration. My grandparents would come down from Westchester and, uh, and that's where we went. We went to Kachina and I learned a lot about food in that room. You know, they had this, I remember them having, they had this magnificent like antipasti kind of bar, you know, kind of, you know, help yourself bar. And, uh, I ate duck there for the first time, and uh, I remember actually that meal with the duck came, it was served with sautéed spinach, but the spinach was served in this basket that was made of potato chips. It was as though they sort of sliced potatoes very thinly with a mandolin, and then I don't know if they blanched them, but then they kind of brushed them with egg and fried them, and the whole thing fused together. It was really sort of a marvel. At the time, you know, eight or nine years old, I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, but... It was like a bird's nest. Exactly. And those guys, it was Tony and Michael, Michael Ayub, who went on to open uh, Fornino. They knew what they were doing. And Did your parents uh, make food at yeah, home? Yeah, oh, like, absolutely. My parents both cook. They both cook well. And you were into it probably from a young age. Totally. Sounds like some of these memories are pretty distinct about oh, food. Oh, very, very. No, there, I have a series of sort of landmark you know, meals that I can sort of trace backwards. And what do you think that's about? Like, did you realize at some point that maybe you had an extra sensitive palate or was it like a special moment that these foods were associated with or what was the key? My palate's fine. I don't think it's like anything particularly kind of marvelous, but... uh, The people who say their palates are really good, those people are usually lying. Right. (laughs) That's what I'd like to think. I'm trying to be modest. (laughs) You can cut that out, right? Um, (laughs) But, and it's something... my family, the people, you know, always kind of commented on as I was, when I was a kid, is that I could remember the, you know, I just, I remembered these meals. I remembered what the plates looked like. I remember, you know, what I ate. Oftentimes I could tell you what my parents had eaten. And it was just, I have a, a memory for those images and actually something for like things like labels too. You know, I was the kind of kid who read the side of the cereal box, both the ingredients and whatever little, you know, story. I used to be able to recite the the Paul Newman's lemonade, there was a sort of legend on the back that, you know, it's the lemonade that we had in the fridge when I was a kid. And so I read it every time I opened the carton and there was a point when I could recite it. I probably can't anymore. Um, but no, on the whole, no, my parents, they, they fed us really well. My mother was the one who always used a cookbook. My dad was the one who was very sort of improvisational, but they both 
they both went out of their way to make sure that we ate well at home. And then when we went to restaurants that, that we went somewhere that, where the food was good. And then we ate a lot of different things. You know, dim sum was always a big kind of family occasion as well. Um, my dad cooked Indian food. He taught himself to cook Indian food years and years ago, which is always delicious. They were into exploring different cultures yeah, through totally. food. Sure. I mean, we didn't do a lot of traveling, but, but yeah, no, there was always, we went to all kinds of, you know, kind of out of the way restaurants. My mom followed the 25 and under column in the Times very carefully. Well, that worked out for the Asimov thing, huh? Yeah, exactly. yeah for you later. You're right? like, I'm exactly. still reading. Yep, <laughs> indeed. The same guy. Same guy. But, you know, they maybe didn't travel much, but you spent some time and traveled the world. I did. I left Blue Ribbon in 2006. I'd been a manager at, at the Brooklyn restaurant for a couple of years at that point. You know, You'd worked your way up. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I guess we could backtrack a little bit. You know, I walked in in 2003 and handed my resume in and I got a call back and I got the job. And uh, I worked that summer, went back to school, graduated, and I came back to New York without any money and without any like burning ambition. I had a history degree. I didn't want to teach. I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I figured, okay, well, I'll go back and you know into the restaurant for the time being. And uh, and I called them up and I said, do you have any busing shifts? And they said, sure, but we'd actually really like for you to be a waiter. So they trained me as a server, and then from there I became a host and then a manager at all. It all happened pretty fast. And I worked as a manager there for just under two years. And it was, it was a great time. I mean, you know, the restaurant was packed, not raucous, but you know, I made a lot, of, a lot of great friends. I had a wonderful time working there. That's where I started to really sort of learn a little bit about wine. I mean, I started to taste on here and there. And you know, when I, when, I remember when we were training, uh, my buddy Jeremy and I were trained as managers at the same time. And uh, you know, our boss, Sean, who's, he's, Sean Santamore has been the general manager at Blue Ribbon for since... 95 but uh you know he's worked for the company since day one and he'd sit us down and the three of us would you know he'd say all right we're gonna taste pinot noir and you know he'd open you know three or four different bottles and we'd sit there and we'd taste them we'd talk about them and then you know he'd say all right you know the next night do the same thing we'll do cabernet you know i tasted you know old wine for the first time like you know 95 musar i mean it was not that old certainly by the standards of those wines but at the time it's and it was you know 60 dollars on the list <laughs> but uh uh, I learned an awful lot in those two years working as a manager there. And at the time, I had a friend from college come visit me, and he was in the in the middle of traveling for a year, he and a buddy. And I thought to myself, God, that's something I'd really like to do. And the one mercy about having grown up in Brooklyn is at the time, I was still living at home. So, you know, I saved some cash, and I thought to myself, this is something I should do. And I did it. You know, I left Blue Ribbon in... October 2006, and I went around the world for 10 months. I visited 20 countries. Went to California for the first time, and then to New Zealand and Australia, and then around Asia, Japan, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, and China. And there was some wine stuff, like in New Zealand stuff. There was, yeah. I visited, I went, I went to Blenheim on the South Island, right in the heart, you know, the, the big town in the heart of Marlborough, and, you know, saw vineyards for the first time. I'd, I'd never actually seen a a grapevine up close up to that point. And yeah, I remember renting, I rented a bike for one of the days I was in Blenheim and just did a sort of cycling tour. And I ended up plotting out a route that was probably more ambitious than I should have because, you know, I was out riding around. I tasted, you know, at sort of 10 or 11 places, I think. And, you know, some small ones. And, you know, also, you know, I tasted at Cloudy Bay and Nautilus, like the big guys. And, you know, I found some wines. I, I remember like tastings of wines that I really liked. And at the time really thinking, oh, these are more like, this is more what I like than a lot of the wines that I think I'm familiar with. From this part of New Zealand, there were, you know, a couple of small producers who made things that felt relatively fine and uh, and a little bit more sort of like, I guess now I would use the word elegant, although I doubt I would have used that word back then only because my vocabulary for wine was not particularly broad. But uh, but there was, I, I remember tasting some wines that I really thought, oh, this is, this is delicious. And I bought a couple of bottles and took them back to the hostel and cooked myself dinner. And, but it was a long day. And I think that, I think the route I planned out ended up being something like 13 or 14 miles. And, uh, I remember getting to about sort of three o'clock and it's summertime there. It was really hot. And I remember being on the highway back into town and flagging a little bit after like a day. I mean, I spat the whole way, but it still, it caught up with me at the end of the day. But yeah, that was, that was, uh, my first time visiting a wine region of any kind was on that trip. And, you know, when I came back from, from my travels, 
Sean offered me a, a spot as a bartender at the Blue Ribbon Downing Street Bar, which is our wine bar uh, right across from Blue Ribbon Bakery in the West Village. And, which was uh, kind of a new thing at the time. It was, yeah. It had been open about seven months. And it was jamming. I mean, it was really, it was, you know, it doesn't hurt that it's very small. It's not difficult to fill up. But when it's full, it feels really, really vibrant, really lively. And it was my first time working as a bartender. First time making real cocktails for the first time, like making real drinks. And it was my first time tasting wine all the time. It was amazing. The first time I had old German Riesling, first time that I had old Chinon, and a lot of things that I drink a lot of now, that was the first place that I tasted them. And we were always able to kind of do anything that we wanted there. It was uh, When I started there, I was very, very enamored of Loire Reds. And uh, I loved Pinot Donis because I'd never had anything else that tasted like it anywhere. And so the, I think the first group that I put together was a Pinot Donis group. And, you know, it was, it was an uphill battle kind of convincing people to drink them. Every customer that walked in, because it was, of course, it was the first group that I'd put together. Every customer that walked in, oh, I want like a glass of red wine. What should I have? Oh, you should have this. Here, this is called Pinot Denise. Try this. And some people would be like, wow, I've never had anything else that tasted like that. And some people would have that reaction. And, you know, it remains kind of a polarizing variety, but some people are like, ugh, that's gross. I don't want that. So how did you deal with that? Um, I'd say, no worries. You know, we have another eight, nine, ten reds open. So, you know. You weren't like one of those guys, like, how could you do this to no, me? You can't right. understand it. One thing that I learned early on, even in that experience, you know, I stopped doing that after a certain point, but, it, you know, at the beginning, that's all I wanted. You know, that's what I wanted people to drink. But um, I figured out very fast, and it was something that was, in, you know, ingrained in me working at Blue Ribbon from the very beginning is that, is listen to the customer. And I learned very quickly to ask the customer, hey, what are you interested in? Rather than, oh, you want a glass of red wine? Here you go. I, le- you know, I learned that lesson fast. Because I feel like uh, Blue Ribbon in particular, a lot of it's more like nourishing standards. Like, you know totally. what I mean? Like, totally. this is the bone marrow. These are the oysters. And they're both really, really good. But it's not like molecular gastronomy. No, and abs- I mean, not like shooting it over people's head. What I tell my staff now when I'm training somebody new or is because this is the way I learned it, is that you know when Blue Ribbon opened, the goal was to be all things to all people. You know, the goal was to make sure that no matter who walked in the door, whether it was four o'clock in the afternoon or four AM, because you know, those are the hours, you know, whether it's a cook getting off at two and looking for just like a Sierra Nevada and a chicken burger, or whether it's a couple coming in at prime time looking for, you know, oysters and champagne and rack of lamb and, you know, old Bordeaux. Uh, those people have to feel equally comfortable. You know, that's the goal. Everybody should walk in and feel like they're walking into, you know, at the very least our home, if not their own. I feel like Blue Ribbon, you can make it as sophisticated or not as you want as exactly. a customer. It's why the menu. So I think, you know, that's always been the goal. It's why I think it's, that's why the menu's so broad is so that there's something for something to make everybody happy. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, Bruce and Eric, when they opened the restaurant, they designed the menu around things that they wanted to eat. And as it turns out, a lot of things that other people wanted to eat as well. But, um, so does that mean that you had to be pretty good at kind of judging where customers wanted to go? Like, yeah. I mean, you know, the w- restaurants are, that have been around as long as, as long as these, we have, Plenty of people who know exactly where they want to go. And then there are plenty of people, you know, first-timers who come in and say, oh, my God, this menu is huge. How much did I have? And, I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, the Sullivan Street menu is the same as it's ever been, but the staff is well-trained in helping them kind of navigate that big food menu. So how does that play out for the wine list? We definitely have categories that we, you know, that we favor. But, yeah, we try to have, we try to have a little bit of something for everybody. And, you know, people come to our restaurants for oysters. There's always going to be plenty of Chablis. There's always going to be plenty of Muscadet. But then there's going to be an Assyrtico to, like, balance against that Muscadet. There's always going to be plenty of red burgundy. But I try to make sure there's always always something from Etna. 
we do lean towards the classics, but for those people who want to go outside of the box, there's always going to be those bottles for them. And I mean, you know, there's always going to be a ton of wine under 70 bucks. It's supposed to be a cliche, but those are the things, you know, those are the things I drink at home. Like I, you know, it's, uh, you know, I drink a lot of, a lot of QBA and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of Chablis and Bourgogne Blanc and things like that rather than uh, the fancier stuff. I guess, you know, I try to practice what I preach. And at one point, you actually thought about being a winemaker, doing did. more practical I did. production so, side. As I spent time at the wine bar and tasted more and more and went out of my way to, to read a lot and to soak up as much as I could, I got to a point where I really thought that I wanted to, to try and understand what I was, everything that I was learning about on a more practical basis. And I really thought, that I thought, maybe hey, this is something that I might want to really like give the old college try. And I had a friend, uh, my friend Whitney Woodham. She worked for Liz Willette at the time. Um, it was just, it was her and Liz um, at Willette Wines at the time. And, uh, you know, she called on me a lot and we tasted a lot together. And, and she had worked in Burgundy. She had worked in Champagne as well. Uh, but she had studied at the, the Lycée Viticole, the CFPPA. It's the, the adult education wing of the Lycée there. Uh, and she'd studied in, you know, she worked for Becky Wasserman there. And I told her, I said, oh, you know, what was it like there? And she said, she was happy. She said, it was the happiest, you know, happiest she'd been in, in many years. She loved living there and loved working there. And I said, you know, do you think I should go check it out? And she said, she said I absolutely do. So I went to, I went to Burgundy I, I, for the first time. It was 2009. Harvest was over. And uh, I went for a week, tasted at a bunch of domains, and and I visited the school, and I got a you know picked up an application for it, and uh, and I went home, came back to New York, and sort of started to think about how I might make this all happen. Once again, I've been living at home again, so like I had some cash saved up. It was something that I could really actually think about, and. Uh, and I ended up doing it. I ended up sort of, you know, I, I applied to the school. The The course that I did is called the BPA. It's uh, the equivalent of an associate's, I guess. It's supposed to, I mean, it's Brevet Professionnel Agricole, and it's supposed to help you get a job working at a winery. You know, the, it's very much a trade school, but then there's a level up from that called BPA, Responsable d'Exploitation Agricole. And, uh, and that's supposed to equip you with everything you need to run a winery yourself. So like, so all the kids of Vigneron that I went to school with, they were all doing that level. So I was in class with some older folks who were kind of looking to get, you know, I mean, you know, unemployment in France remains, a, you know, it, it's a perpetual problem. Um, so these were people either looking for a way to find their way into a new industry or kids who had like left school basically and looking for, you know, looking for some, trade experience and you know school started in august 2010 it was two weeks of class and they really like everyone they really cram everything in as quickly as they can because everyone's always on kind of pins and needles about when picking has you know is going to start so i mean harvest starts you know in some kind of four or five you know everybody agree you know everyone's more or less agreed that it's going to start in some four or five day window but Obviously, depending on where you're doing, you know, depending on where you're working, you're going to be starting at the beginning of that five-day window or at the end of it. So they really like kind of cram it in. It's vinification, like 101 in, in nine days or something like that. You know, learning about, you know, physically about what to expect, like what the winery is going to look like for, you know, the people who have never, you know, including me, who had never really set foot in one apart from, you know, when everything is like clean and like stuffed away. But, uh, you know, basic like grape biology, you know, what a vine looks like, both when it's, you know, covered in growth and when you're, you know, getting to things like pruning and, you know, they, they really, they cram in an awful lot in that two week space. And then harvest started. And I, I did harvest and vinification that year at, uh, at Domaine des Croix and Bone with David Croix from, uh, he also makes the wines at Camille Giroux, but he has his own little domain in Bone. So they give you an externship basically. Yeah, well, they, they, it's funny when I went in for the interview, when I first got there, I still had to kind of, I had to sort of sit an interview when I arrived and I didn't quite know where I was going to be. And they handed me 
uh, you know, a couple of phone numbers for kind of people that I've, that they knew would happily take me on. One was Alex Gamble. And I think, you know, their reaction was, you know, I'm sure that they partly thought that because Alex is American and people um, speak English. Exactly. Because David Kwok can speak English. He does. He does speak English. So, you know, I was actually staying at Giro at the time. I knew David already. And, um, you know, Whitney had introduced me to him years ago. And uh, so I was staying at Giroux for the first two weeks I was there, maybe, before my apartment was ready to move into. And, uh, and you know, like day four of being there, he was like, hey, you know, by the way, if you, you know, what's going to happen? Like, what's the schedule like? And I said, oh, you know, they're talking about, there's, I think there's two weeks of class. And then he's like, well, if you need a stage, I have a place at, you know, at DDC, at Domaine de Croix. And, uh, you know, it'd be, you know, no problem. So he offered. That was pretty he, cool. Yeah. I mean. Didn't have to be that way, right? It did not have to be that way, and you know, it was a, there were a long series of like events like that. David was very, very good to me in the time I was there. So, um, what did you pick up working with him? Um, that's mostly reds from the Cote de Bone. It is. It's reds from the Cote de Bone. There's bone. There's some Savigny and Alos and some Corton, um, some Grand Cru, and which he had just bought the year before. I mean, you know, the Alos and the Corton were the first vintage was 09s. And I think he literally bought the vines something like three weeks before harvest. I mean, it was, you know, he, he, I don't think he, he hadn't actually been farming them yet when he made the purchase. But uh, there's a little bit of Corton Charlemagne too. Like it's like a third of a hectare. I mean, it's virtually, you know, it's th three barrels. But um, what I learned there, the best thing about, I have to say, the best thing about working there, as much, it was an awful lot of fun. It was a great team. He has a great chef de cave there. A guy named David Vero, really sharp, really careful, kept everything super clean. You know, he, he said he learned that from Fichet. like, Jean-Philippe is, you know, he always referred to him as maniac. He's like, I'm the same way. He's like, the, the first day I came in from the vines during harvest and I had some mud on my boots and I started to track it inside. He said, Sam, no, that doesn't work. Clean your boots, like change your shoes, you know, sweep that up and then like spray it down with the hose. Like that's... That's not going to happen here. So, uh, you know, the working with David, I think the the best thing is that he had the ability to translate really like fairly complex viticultural and phonological concepts into very very simple terms, and he was able to really like break down for me. This is what we do. This is why we do it, and this is really like. This is as this is as much as we really know, and after that, we're kind of guessing, you know. Like there's, Cause it's, it's not often that people tell you that. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's very, very, very upfront about it. He's like, "This is why I'm doing this. This is the idea. Does it work? I don't know." He's like, you know, the first vintage was 2005. Like he's still, you know, always kind of. I mean, you know, I'm sure that almost any serious grower would tell you the same thing that they're constantly, constantly trying to like learn and refine and. But, you know, he was really still just kind of, you know, doing everything kind of, you know, bit by bit and constantly, constantly changing and constantly trying to like really make things better by increments and, uh, and make adjustments and, and wines are good. Um, <laughs> I'm a good way to taste through what Cote de Bon tastes like. Like you can taste yeah, through a nut cellar and it, get a sense. It is. It's a really, um, you, you do get a sense of, you know, even with like, just like, for instance, like the village of Bone. I mean, you know, his Bone Village, I think, is a really clear representation of what the Appalachian has to offer as a whole. Because there's a piece of, you know, there's a there are two there are a couple pieces of a couple of little vineyards at the very north end, kind of in the flats, like just north of like Sanvigne, but but right up against Savigny, where the wines tend to be, uh, you know, really kind of. I think particularly in the flats because the soils are really sandy. They tend to be really kind of round and kind of like generous, but not without a ton of structure. And then in the middle, you know, Bas de Terran is, uh, you know, just below Terran and Greve. And I think that's where you get the really like classic, you still have the, the kind of generous fruit, but you don't have, but you have a little bit more finesse, a little bit more acidity and a little bit more like kind of crunch. And then there was one more piece that butts right up against Puma. And that was another really, you know, everything was vinified separately, uh, assembled after it was pressed. And that last piece, you know, behaves much more 
like Pomar, the wines were a little bit kind of burlier and and grippier. And I saw, so you know, putting the three together, I think you get a really lovely wine with like freshness, but also some, you know, beautiful kind of like round, like that really classic, pretty round red fruit that you get from Bone. And so you got um, to see how putting the pieces together could be totally pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, same thing with like you know assemblage like for Corton Charlemagne like watching you know tasting the barrel separately you know once a month for however long and then doing some blending and kind of watching a wine come together I mean you know it's uh I had a friend who said oh you know it's gonna when I was talking about leaving I, I had a friend who was like oh you know it's gonna take some of the magic out of it and it really doesn't it's uh it really I think it only kind of reinforced it for me so I ended up staying at Domaine des Croix for the full school year, you know, you do a series of stages over the course of the year, interspersed by periods of being in class. You know, we'd have, there was a pruning stage. So I spent like a week and a half pruning both for Domaine de Croix and a little bit of time at Giroux too. You know, Giroux, they don't have a ton of vineyard holdings, but they do have a couple of parcels in, also in Bone, the, you know, probably the most notable one is in Bone Crotz, right up at the top, really old finds great quality material it's a really delicious wine but uh pruning is great my favorite part of the cycle there is an intellectual kind of component that i found utterly kind of compelling you know it was particularly interesting in the new holdings because of course this was the only the second time that the team had spent pruning like you know these vines that were just bought in 2009 so you know, confronting a vine that you're thinking where you're thinking about the future, you know, you're looking not just about next year, but the year before and, you know, learning about different, you know, pruning techniques, you know, the, that we were doing something different there than we were learning in class, for instance, you know, the, rather than like the classic Gio, something called Gio Poussard that comes from the, it's uh, mostly found in the Loire Valley. And so that was, you know, yeah, it was a lot, a lot to take in, but yeah, I, I, I loved pruning, loved the, the spring vine work. I mean, that was really, 2011 was a tough spring for it too because it was very, very hot, sort of famously very warm, very early. I think that you know, we were a solid three weeks ahead of the previous year and probably another week ahead of like 07, which had been the last kind of, I think it was the last vintage where they'd had a spring, a really early spring like that. But it was, it was in the mid-70s by... Uh, about the third week in March, and I think by June, when we were really out there all the time, you know, it was hitting like 100, 101, 102 uh, at the hottest part of the day. So we were starting at 5.30, 6 o'clock-ish, and just working until 1, and that was that, and that was the day, and we'd come back and, you know, clean the winery or uh, top of barrels or whatever it was, you know, all those things that you do when it is physically impossible to do any more work in the vines. And, uh, and it was just, it was a, it was a great time. I, you know, having worked in restaurants my entire life, you know, you know, this as well as anybody I'm sure, but when you come home, you're exhausted, but you're also wound up, you know, there's, it's, you can't just ever sit down and like, you know, lie down and go to bed. Like it's like a physical impossibility. You have to like calm down. And, for me, the most the most remarkable thing about the work that we were doing is that I was coming home, you know, sitting on the couch, opening a beer, and I could barely lift my arms. You know, it was physically, and but it was also incredibly satisfying. There was nothing enervating, or you didn't have that sense of kind of nervousness that you have when you come home from a restaurant. It was really very. It was it was incredibly satisfying work. You know, I made some mistakes, and I got you know. David Vero, he had to he had to spank me a couple of times, but uh, you know I remember when we were taking off, kind of, we were going through the the parcel and bone grave and taking off the excess flowers, and before you know this is before Barry set, and you know taking off a few extra flowers here and there where the vines probably had just too many, and I remember there were there was a row, I, I think I got through about a third, third of a row, quarter of a row. When he came through, he's like, you see this? He's like, you should have six or seven here. 
this four or five thing, this is not going to work. Like we don't want to make too much wine, but we can't make this little either. Like you have to, you know, you have to be a little bit more careful about what you're doing here. Um, our profits are down 10% because Sam was there. Right. Well, I mean, those vines don't produce much as it is. I have to, you know, I, I, you know, it's uh, it's three barrels every year in Grev there. So, um, that's one of my favorite wines from him. Yeah. It's spectacular. I mean, you know, this is, this is, that's another thing that he really, he really drove home with me is that as hard as you can work and as much as you can do, there is no substitute for having really, really good material in the vineyards. If you have, you know, high quality rootstock and like high quality Pinot or whatever it is you happen to be working with. That's like, that's like 90% of the battle right there. You know, in Grev, he was like, I love this parcel. He's like, it's the smallest one I have, but the material is so good. This is, he's like, this is Beluga caviar every year. He's like, I love this parcel. He's like, if I had this kind of material in all my vines, it's like, I'd be the happiest man in the world. But yeah, so I spent, that first year working at Decois was really a fantastic experience from start to finish. And you worked in another winery as well. I did. So when school finished, I had no idea what I was going to do. I really didn't know whether I was going to be able to stay in Burgundy because I didn't know if I'd find another job. You know, I didn't have a ton of experience. I had, you know, that was it. That was the sum total of my experience. But uh, on the, the last day, you know, during the little like, de départ, the, 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 where they open a couple of bottles for all the students to have a little toast before everyone disperses. The woman who was the sort of essentially the dean of students, she comes up to me and she said, Sam, what are you going to do now? And I said, I really don't know. I think I'm going to go do harvest in Champagne. And she said, well, I had two phone calls this week for people from wineries looking for somebody. She said, one of them is Chanson. And then she said, the other one was Armand Rousseau. And I was so hungover from the party that my friends and I had had the night before that I could barely like hear people properly. And I didn't understand what she had said. And I said, okay, but I didn't, I didn't realize that that's what she had said. And I went to a friend of mine, a classmate who had done his, his, all his work at Russo that year. Cause his older brother was the, the chef de culture there. And, uh, and I said, Hey, do you know of a, an estate in Gervais kind of looking for somebody full time? And he said, yeah, he said, I'm on Rousseau. And I, I was like, okay, all right, I better go back and talk to her again. So I did. And I said, I didn't understand what you said to me before, but you apparently said that Rousseau is looking for someone. I said, I'm totally interested. Of course. I mean, you know, why wouldn't you be? And, uh, and she gave me the phone number and I called and I spoke to the secretary in the office and I said, hi, I'm calling from, you know, I'm a, a uh, student from the CFPPA and you know our, our our dean of students said that uh you're looking for 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 a full-time worker and she said no 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 we're just looking for somebody for spring work to finish out the you know the the season in the vines i mean this is still like this is the end of may early june and i said oh okay well i guess i was misinformed could i leave my phone number just in case you know uh, when i'm done working where I'm working now, you still have some work because I'd certainly love, you know, the extra money. And she said, sure. And I think five or six days go by and we're finishing our very last day of, of spring vine work at Decois. And I'm out in, you know, sort of over it's overcast and it, it's starting to, it, it had just started to cool down. It was like, yeah, sort of the first week in July, it had started to cool down a little bit and we'd had a little bit of rain. It was very muddy. I remember vividly and my phone rings and uh and i answer the phone i say hello and he says oui sam c'est eric Rousseau." and you know he's he's got this very sort of you know kind of low kind of kind of guttural voice and uh i said oh oh hello uh yeah hi how are you and i you know we we talked for a couple of minutes he's like i know you called uh you know contrary to what my secretary may have said we are looking for for somebody full time, he said, "Do you want to come up and come up to the estate and talk?" And I said, "Sure, yeah, absolutely, of course I do." So I went up and you know sat in his office and we talked a little bit about what he was looking for. He was really looking for like a labeling guy. I mean, that was really the job he was hiring for. What do they call that? Responsable d'étiquette. Oh yeah, yeah, the labeling master. But he said it'll start before harvest and you'll do 
you know, all the, the prep work and for harvest and you'll work in the winery and, and then once that's done, you know, you'll be working in the cellar a little bit and then you'll be doing a lot of labeling. And I said, great, you know, more than happy to do it. And he did say to me at the time, he was like, there's a possibility that if it all goes well, that we would hire you for like full time. So what I was getting hired for was a contract for like a set period of time, but they call it city day. And, uh, but he said, there's a possibility of city CDI, which is indefinite. And, uh, I said, well, it's, you know, I'd, I'd love the chance. And so I, and I took the job and it was, it was this like a whole second education because it, number one, the operation could not have been more different than at Dequa. You know, at Dequa, the the viticulture is really kind of it feels very progressive. Not in terms of like, I mean, he's you know David's in conversion. I mean, he may have already made the full conversion to biodynamics at this point, um, but just in terms of the way the vines look and the way they're sort of like pruned and sculpted and you know everything is super super exact and precise and um and i remember being in the vines at russo for the first time and just looking at thinking about how different they looked and the hedging was much much lower you know at dequa we hedged you know very high like a solid like some on occasion actually you know like above my head and uh so that has an effect on how much sun goes to the leaves right totally and you know the clearly like doing a lot less at russo they were clearly doing a lot less you know kind of green harvest than we were doing but the wines are still delicious, A. And B, you know, long established. And, you know, it's not like Charles Russo, Charles, the father, you know, Eric's father was, and this is explained to me in, in great detail, when he took over in 59, when Armand Russo died rather prematurely, he'd been to school, he'd studied viticulture, he'd studied enology. And the most important thing, the thing that he knew, and the thing that, you know, I had heard David talk about, but he knew this in the 50s when no one else was, or very few estates were thinking about it, is that first and foremost, the quality of the material that you plant in the vines makes all the difference. So while everybody else in, you know, in you know, that infamous period in the 60s when everyone else is planting for for volume, um, he was planting, he was looking for those really like quality Pinot clones and good rootstock. And so they at Russo, to this day, their selections are based on those great old clones of Pinot that Charles Rousseau was planting in the fifties and early sixties. And they maintain a really like good average vine age throughout the estate it runs, I think somewhere across the board about 45 years by just, you know, they pull up a tiny, tiny percentage of the surface, the whole surface of the domain every year and replant it using their own, selections and so you know like i said it's like you know 90 95 percent of the work so they hadn't done because that spring had been so hot and everyone had felt really good about like where the vintage was headed they had left a little bit more fruit on the vines than they might otherwise do and then the day that the way that eric explained to me he said the day that they all left for vacation july 23rd hail and Givre. so you know, it had, we started, ended up starting work much earlier because between six of us, I mean, you know, the harvest would be, would start two weeks later, but on August, we all arrived at the estate on August 16th. We started picking on the 30th. We all started on the 16th, uh, working just the, the, the core of the team and went through the entire, not the entire, the, the entire estate, but a solid three quarters of it. It was like a little mini harvest for the first week that everyone was back at work, going through and cutting out all of the the worst, the, the damaged fruit. Like it was really, I mean, it was, they're not doing any less, they were not doing any less work. And in fact, probably more work than, than a lot of people. I mean, it was very, very careful, you know, very intense. But, uh, you know, if you don't do it, then you know, the quality level is not just not going to be there. So, and then, yeah, harvest started on the 30th, a small team for 14 hectares. If you consider that we had a team of 40 at Domaine de Croix for seven hectares or whatever it is, six and a half, uh, at Rousseau, they have 14 and it was a picking team of 25. So 
another set of like long days, like a good, it was, it was nine, nine, 10 days, but you know, long, long picking days. And, uh, but it was, it was great. I mean, it was a great team, really, really fun. What was it like being on those different crews? Pretty remarkable. And seeing like, even within Chambertin, for instance, I mean, you know, it's, they said, it's, it's the one that everybody remembers, but, uh, you know, they had just bought the year before. So actually, the same purchase at Domaine des Croix, where David acquired the Corton, the Grand Cruz, and the parcel of Alex Corton, Eric had purchased, I think, a half a hectare of Chambertin had come up as, you know, had been offered as part of the same sale. And he bought it, and I mean, life me, I can't remember what he paid for it. It was an astonishing sum of money. Um, it was really, it was a lot of money. But it was, it was this parcel that ran actually where the vine, it's above, it's up on a terrace above the main plot. Sort of, it looks a little bit more like, you know, that parcel above Clos de Bez called Bel Air. It looks a little bit more like that. And the vines run, nor, it's the only place in Chambertown where the vines were north to south, slightly younger. But it was really interesting seeing how much, because it's right up against the woods, seeing how much the humidity trapped up against the woods affected those vines compared to, you know, being a little bit lower in the slope where you just get a lot more, you know, a lot more wind and a lot more sort of, you know, keeps, keeps the vines much, much drier. There was, you know, the, we really had to be careful with the amount of rot and, you know, that, uh, compared to the, like the rest of Chambertin, just seeing the way that the, the soil sticks to your shoes differently from Chambertin to Clotebez to Clos Saint-Jacques, you know, it's, uh, Saint-Jacques and Cazetier, you know, they're so steep. I mean, there's very, very little topsoil, particularly when you get above kind of like the first, the first of the, the rows, you know, there's a, there's a road that splits, splits the parcel running, running north to south. But uh, when you get above that road, just how, how rocky and how kind of like kind of spare it looks compared to, compared to other places in the village, certainly. What's the harvest like in each one of those parcels? It was, you know, vineyard by vineyard, a parcel at a time. Like Clos de Bez, one afternoon, you know, it's, it all comes in at once. Chambertin, actually Chambertin might have been done at two different times. I can't remember, but Clos Saint-Jacques was the last day. It's apparently always the last parcel picked. Is it the coldest site? It is, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's very high up and, you know, it does tuck into that, into the comb the, that uh, turns off towards... Uh, so that means more wind. Yeah. Because there's uh, more wind coming through the calm. There is. And the fruit is, well, I mean, even in a, in, even in a tricky vintage, like 11, I think that at Clos Saint-Jacques was where we saw the least hail damage. So we spent, we had spent the least time there already. So I was really struck by just how like beautiful and how clean everything was compared to like some of the other sites that we, you know, that we worked we worked You'd been in. taking even the damage like, clusters. Even like Cazetier, like, you know, to the right, like next door was... There was a lot more, a lot more rot compared to Clos Saint-Jacques, which was very clean, very sort of like, yeah, really kind of perfect looking. What did the Rousseau vines look like compared to the neighboring vines? Really interesting. Actually, in Mazoyer, his parcel is right next to Dugatpi. And where I had, you know, I'd been to taste once. And I have a huge amount of admiration for, for Dugatpi. I mean, you know, the wines are very polarizing and I'm not crazy about all of them by a very, very long way. You know, they can be really, really tough to drink in their youth because they can seem so massive and, um, you know, the amount of oak, the amount of extraction. But he's got very old vines, really, really high quality material. And again, you know, so that when I looked at his vines, it was a little bit more akin to what I had been doing at Domaine des Croix, except that it was even, it was, the level of precision, I mean, I kid you not, the space between the clusters looked like it had been measured with a ruler. I mean, it was like, you know, and they were hedged very high. You know, there was every, you know, every leaf looked like, you know, you could tell every leaf, every like second shoot, everything that had been taken off was done for a reason. And looking at the vines at Russo, by comparison, you know, you didn't get quite that sense. But what makes those wines so delicious is that you know, there's that, they have that really like, you know, even in, when you're in Gevray, which, you know, the wines can be relatively, you know, relatively sturdy, relatively kind of, you know, burly in their youth. 
I feel like the Russo wines always have, there's always like a supple quality to them that makes them incredibly pleasurable from Gervais Village, certainly up to like the Premier Cruz. I mean, you know, Cote Bez can definitely be a little bit rough and it's, you know, it can be a little, a little challenging and when it's young, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it was remarkable looking at the differences between those parcels, you know, and you have in Charm and Masway are there too. You have, it's like a series of like rock stars, like one right next to the other. And you have Bachelet next to Roti next to, do you got P like at the top of Charm right below the road there? They're all, it's all like a list Gervais right there. What about the Rouchat for Rousseau? My favorite parcel at the estate, actually, I have to say it is, it's the, it's the Claude Rouchat, you know, it's right up at the top. It's that corner parcel. It's got, you know, one of those old, you know, beautiful old kind of stone kind of doorways. And uh, it's a really, that's the, you know, similar to Saint-Jacques, you know, there's so little topsoil. It's very, the, the minerality in that wine is, I've always, like, I've always found really compelling. And there's like a savage quality to it too. There's always like a tiny little bit of like kind of an animal quality to it that sets it really far apart from, the other ones at the estate. I mean, I think, you know, the, but I think it's delicious. It's, uh, yeah. It's, uh, out of, out of all the ones at the domain, I think that that one has always kind of really kind of gotten my, like, gets me right in the gut. It's the one that tastes different than the others. It does. It tastes different from all the others. And yeah, I think it just has to be due to the fact that I think, the, uh, I, I think it, it's due to the fact that the parcel is so different from, from everything else. I mean, like, you know, the, it's just above Mazi. It's not far from Mazi, but it could not be, could not be more different from his Mazi Chambertin. It's like directly above it by, you know, sort of 70 or a hundred feet of elevation higher. Cause um, when I think of the Mazi, I think of more, quite a bit more fruit. Yeah, much more. And that's like very, very kind of mineral and kind of angular by comparison. It's probably the most. The Rouchard is the most angular. Yeah. I think it's probably, yeah. yeah, it's got like the most cut of all the wines. It does taste different from everything else. Though. You're absolutely right. So what was it like when you tasted through the barrels? Really interesting. I had been once before I started working there to taste the nines and then tasting the tens and then the elevens, like, you know, over the course of X number of months. It's a really, it's a very clear kind of educative experience. I mean, it's a real like masterclass in terroir and Gervais. The village, which is an assembly of like, I don't know, a lot of different parcels. I can't even remember how many. It's always really round. It's very accessible. You know, it's got that like kind of Ferris kind of Gervais minerality. But uh, then you go from that to Charm to and Mazi. The order is always it's it's Lavo Saint Jacques, then Cazetier, then Charm, Mazi, Clos de la Roche, and then you actually taste Rouchot before Clos Saint-Jacques. So, um, and it's interesting. I remember tasting the 09 Clos de la Roche and thinking, I remember being really, really struck by it. I thought it was spectacular. I mean, I think that I remember talking with somebody about it later who said that they thought it was, who'd been recently as well, who said they thought it had been, it was the best Clos de la Roche that Rousseau had ever made. You know, again, it's another really, really well-placed, like beautiful kind of parcel. Although I don't know who the neighbors are there. Because that's a whole other commune. It is, and it's really easy to, you know, it's easy to spot in the lineup. It's really interesting to taste that right in the middle of all of the, the Gervais parcels. Is that um, the only major parcel that they have outside of Gervais? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing, I mean, I, think, I don't think there's anything else. Um, there's some Bourgogne Blanc, but that's like... I don't think know, I've ever had that. It's, it's, it, he doesn't sell it. It's like harvest wine, you know, he bottles it. It's, it was the very last thing we picked. Every, after everything else was done and all the picking team had gone home... Like we went out, you know, core six, you know, core team of six and, and picked it all. And it's from Gervais. I think it falls technically within Gervais, but it's, it's well below the road. Like it's not, I mean, you know, it's perfectly good wine, but like, I mean, I don't, there is a label for it, but again, like I think the, the only people who get the bottles are, you know, we drink it during harvest and then, you know, he, he hands out to his regular to his employees. I have a few bottles somewhere. They're not here. They're in France, but but I do have some some Bourgogne Blanc somewhere. So sometimes with Burgundy, and maybe this has to do with the length of the mallows in red, 
sometimes it takes a while for the vineyard to really show up in the barrel. Like the the level of the vineyard mm-hmm. can take a while sometimes. Yeah. For me, for my taste, and maybe I'm wrong. Sure. But. No, I think you're absolutely right. And then sometimes it shows up right away. So I'd be curious. I think that, I mean, certainly there, I think the wines that show really well out of barrel, my memory, Claude de la Roche showed really well out of barrel. Chambertin, Rouchot show really, all of those three, yeah, those three show really, really well out of barrel. Claude de Bez tends to show, I, I feel always like the over three, tasting three vintages while I was there, uh, always comes off as like the most like reductive, I think. And, you know, Saint-Jacques, that Claude Saint-Jacques, I think just feels, I think it feels like, the, it always feels the most backward to me. Like it's not, it's not reduced, but it just, you know, I think it always comes across as like the most closed. Well, cooler sight, right? Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed, and I've only tasted through once. Right. So, and, you know, was that when I tasted at Rousseau, there was a lot of red fruit. Mm-hmm. And when I taste in the bottle, it's a lot of darker fruit. So I was like, where does that transformation happen? The one that always comes across as darkest, regardless, is Clos de Bez. And um, from the ones I've tasted, like it's always, yeah, it always seems the most, much more sort of like, yeah, blue and black and there's more spice. And, um, but uh, I think that red fruit character through like the village wines and the Premier Cruz always, I, I feel like sort of sustains itself more, but with, yeah, you're right. I mean, like, you know, Clodebez certainly, but Chambertin too tends to like darken a little bit. You get a, a lot more sort of, you know, tastes like Christmas, kind of like sugar plum and things like that. So. Did you have any uh, kind of key Eric or Charles moments, like something they said where you're like, oh. Yeah. I mean, there were, you know, I got spanked there a couple of times too, you know, topping up the cellar there with, even in the, I mean, the 09 vintage there was, I mean, there was quite a lot of wine. There were a lot of barrels. And I remember topping up the 09s one day. And I think it took me close to, I mean, it took me at least three and a half hours to do the whole cellar. And he came downstairs and he said, Sam, are you finished? And I said, no. He's like, what do you have left? And I said, well, I have all this here. And it was all, it was the last of, I think the only thing left was Chambertin, but it was like a solid, like eight barrels or something, or nine barrels still to go. And he's like, Sam? Bubble, not good, Sam. You need this needs this needs to move a little bit faster. You need to get better at this. So, but you'd probably never worked with barrels stacked on top of barrels before, because qua it's like a single layer. Yeah, single. Uh, there, yeah, I think there were in in '09 at DDC there were there were some stacked barrels in the maybe in Pertuiso, but that was it. Like, so it's all laid out for you exactly. So is that Russo? Thing, it's like four or five right, high. Where I'm, well, not quite that high. I mean, it was even, but even with just too high like that was something that you know the trick is you're supposed to you have to learn to listen for when the barrel is full and so i was either you know i was i would go very very slowly because i was really trying to listen hard to when it was being you know to where it's the point where it was full you cared so much that it was slowing you down because you really didn't yeah, want well, to i also it up. didn't want to yeah i didn't want to fuck it up but i also didn't want to yeah I, you know i didn't either want to leave it leave some space or overflow well which i have to confess probably happened more than it should have. Like, you know, everybody keeps a little like bucket of like sulfur solution with a sponge. And I, I had to wipe off a lot of barrels. We'll just, we'll leave it at that. But uh, it was, it was. So if you can't find a bottle of 09, it's Sam's fault. That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there could have been two more bottles. Oh, but... there was, I actually think there was plenty of wine that even with my mistakes. So, um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a great experience and it was, it was great to see, the juxtaposition of the two, like, you know, of Decois versus Rousseau, like it was a real, I really felt like I got to see like both sides of, you know, I got to see classic Burgundy and then I got to see kind of where it's headed, you know? Um, Generationally. Yeah, exactly. So. What was it like living there? It was great. I had a, I had a, a glorious time. You know, I had a group of great friends, you know, people, I mean, it's one of those places, I guess, that really kind of pulls pulls people from from everywhere so you know i had friends all from all over europe and they were from japan and you know uh, becky and russell you know becky wasserman and her and her husband russell hone took very good care of me and you know there was always i was always able to go to lunch when uh 
you know, at the office when at the end of the month, if, you know, if I was broke, like there was, a, I, I could, there was always an extra chair for lunch and. Russell's great to have lunch with. He, there's no one else like it. I remember actually there was, uh, I, I did the inventory in their cellar to prep for the symposium two years in a row. And the first time I went up there to, to spend the weekend counting bottles, we were talking, Russell's from Scotland, and we were, we've, we've been talking about. You tell me you met Sean Connery? I didn't actually no, but we and they'd just been on vacation on the Isle of Mull, which is one of the the Inner Hebrides off the west coast. And I had a friend when I was there who was actually who'd grown up on Mull. I mean, you know, his parents were English and they'd moved up there. They had a a farm, and but I'd been there and we talked about it, and and we'd been talking about Scottish food, which we both loved. I mean, Russell, you know, he's uh, he's very old school in that respect, and he loves the stuff that he grew up eating. And we were talking about haggis, and he said, Sam how would you like to have haggis for dinner? Because I think I have one in the freezer. And I said, I would love that. He's like, let's, I said, you know, if you want to make haggis, but I said, is it McSween's? Which is considered, you know, that's like the, that's the Cadillac of haggis in, uh, and he looks at me and he says, of course it's McSween's, you know? And, uh, and, that, and so, you know, he cooked haggis for dinner. We had haggis and uh, drank like Cassiard or something like that. It was really, it was a glorious meal. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it, was, it was a great time living there. You know, the town is tiny. I had a bike. That's how I got around. I'd ride my bike and we'd go and, you know, we'd ride our bikes and go visit and taste, you know, in the Cote de Bone. And if not every weekend, then probably every other weekend, you know, I tasted it a lot of, tasted with a lot of people who, you know, taught me a lot of different things. And Were there some standout moments? Tasting with Olivier Lamy in Saint-Auvin was amazing. You know, I went there a couple of times, but he's really, he's one of the most intense people I've ever met. And he talks a mile a minute. I mean, he really can just, if you get him going on something, he will not stop. But uh, it was at the end of a long day. And, and I think that, you know, a couple of the other people in the group kind of like losing their attention span a little bit. And I was like ready to go. I'd, you know, it was the first time I went there and I'd been looking forward to tasting there for a long time. And so I basically had like Olivia's attention for like an hour and a half. Like, you know, we just kind of talked and he answered all my questions and he does something regularly and he bottles a small percentage of every year under a series of different closures just to kind of like test. So, you know, we tasted uh, Freon, I think, Santa Bat Freon under a natural cork and under like a, you know, kind of a plastic enclosure, I think, like plastic cork and the one under plastic felt so advanced by comparison. Natural cork was like fresh as a daisy. It was really like spectacular. And the, the, uh, the plastic works felt a little, it wasn't pre-moxed, but neither was, did it feel like really where the wine should have been. I mean, it was like 07. So it should have been great. And the one other cork was so, and, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of great tastings, a lot of, a lot of great appointments. Tasting, I mean, I think it's a truism, but at this point, it's like a cliche, but I tasted at Rumier with a friend of mine who was a xenologist, and, you know, we, so tasting, tasting in that cellar, and the number, you know, I mean, the number of wines, he makes Ruchat as well, and it was interesting tasting his while it's I was, very different. while I was working at, exactly, very, and they're not that far away from one another, he, I, his parcel is as high on the hillside as Rousseau's, I mean, it's just a little bit further to the south, but it's very different. And then tasting, you know, the two, you know, he keeps up a, a barrel of Bon Mar from white soil and a barrel of Bon Mar from the red soil separate so that you can, and it is a remarkable juxtaposition there as well. It's really, that was very, very cool. That was, it was exciting. But, uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, life and bone was, it, it was very pleasant. You know, I had a great group of friends. We got together like four nights a week. Um, I had a big kitchen, so dinner was often at my place, and we cooked these huge meals and opened a lot of bottles. We, it was probably the most that, the, almost two years I was there, I probably drank more than I'd like to admit, and certainly more than I had since I was in college. So, and it felt like I was in college to a certain degree. But it seems like a lot of good memories, like you'd have for college oh, too. Nothing but. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it was it was great. I mean, I wouldn't honestly. I might have stayed longer, but. Uh, yeah, my why'd you come back? My brother and his wife, they had a baby at the end of 2011. And, uh, and so I, all of a sudden I had a niece and, uh, I decided it was, that was, that, that was, 
reason enough to come back. I didn't want to like miss those, you know, those, those early years. She's a piece of work, so she's very much an Ehrlich in that respect. Actually, so very strong-willed. But, so you, uh, you came back to New York and you went back to work for. I did, yeah. I mean, I took a I took a few interviews when I came back with a bunch of different people, and in the end, you know, I really wanted. I liked the idea of running a program and. Blue Ribbon offered me that chance, you know, uh, to that point, you know, uh, Sean had, you know, he'd been running the wine program for Blue Ribbon for years, but there was, the group had expanded greatly and there was, you know, there was some more on the horizon. And uh, so I think, that, you know, they, they created this, the wine director position essentially for me. I mean, it was a new position at the time. It didn't, it didn't exist on the face of things. It was an expanding group. Very much. And so, uh, and I took the job and, you know, and it's, it was a challenge at the beginning. There's no question. Like it was, uh, finding my feet, you know, figuring out what I needed from, in, you know, including at some restaurants where I had never worked, you know, I mean, we had all of a sudden I had never been part of the, the sushi side of the organization. I hadn't worked at any of the sushi restaurants. And, uh, when I first came back, we opened Blue Urban Sushi as a Kaya. I worked there for the first sort of eight months we were open. That was my first time setting foot on the floor at the Japanese, at any of our Japanese restaurants. And uh, so learning, learning an entirely new set of ingredients and thinking about wine in a very, very different context and thinking about wine versus a lot of other beverage options. I mean, you know, with our other, you know, there's no sake, there's no shochu at our, at Blue Ribbon Brooklyn or at the Downing Street bar. Oh, there actually, there is a little bit of sake at the Downing Street bar, but it doesn't really play Oof. into, you know, Exactly, but at the bakery or at uh, Blue Ribbon Brasserie on Sullivan Street, there's none of. You don't have this extra dimension of competition. Competition, exactly, um, and so that was very that was a challenge, and and probably the approach from the staff is different, and the customers are different, probably completely, completely. You know, it's not the kind of thing that most people walk into thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to have a bottle of wine with dinner. Like most people walk into a Japanese restaurant thinking. You know, let's have some sake. Like, let's have, we'll have hot and we'll have cold sake or beer, tea, a cocktail. It's another place where, you know, the cocktail program is like really vibrant and we sell a ton, we sell a ton of cocktails. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's indicative of the Lower East Side in general, but, you know, I think it's a, a huge, huge kind of culture for that. But, but wine is fighting for attention in this. In yeah. This I realm. mean, and, and f- so the challenge is for me from then and even now is, finding a way to make it fit and make it vibrant without, without shoving it down people's throats, I guess, you know, if you want a bottle of wine, then we have the things that you want here. We have things for the food and you're going to enjoy yourself. Sometimes I find that the approach for sushi restaurants is actually like the customer kind of associates sushi as like a luxury item and they kind of associate wine with a luxury item. And so they're there for a luxury experience. And so they end up spending a lot of money on a wine that maybe doesn't fit the food, but it does fit the concept of luxury. Totally. I mean, I think, you know, like for at our 58th Street restaurant, for instance, we sell a, a lot. I mean, there's a big kitchen menu there and we have a couple of big steaks, but, you know, we sell a lot of California Cabernet there. Um, you know, it's not something we have any trouble kind of moving through. And, you know, I've seen people drink like, Otoro with, with Cali Cab, and it's not for me. But if that's you know, once again, day one Blue Ribbon lesson is that it's always going to be about what the customer wants, and when if they enjoy it, then everything else is just kind of details, you know. But uh, you know, but we sell plenty of things. You know, there are still people, in particular like Fifty Eighth Street, we sell a lot of champagne. I. Everyone I know, and you know, including me at some of our restaurants, you know, talks about how much trouble they have selling German Riesling. But you know, and I think Riesling in general. Like I think you know, from you look at the category, kind of eight years ago when it was really having kind of a moment, and now here we are, and everybody's like kind of correcting about how tricky it is to sell up there. Like I sell more German Riesling than I sell probably at any other restaurant, and you know, good stuff, and you know, at a series of price points. But, and, and I mean, for the most part, classic producers, you know, Zillikin and Prune, like those wines move up there. Prager as well. 
no issues at all. I can go through those wines. So how's that compared to the other more kind of classic European style menus of the other Blue Ribbon restaurants? Um, I think it's partly about location. I think it's also, you know, that's a very, very midtown restaurant compared to all our other places. We don't have that. You're mostly a downtown Brooklyn group. Yeah, we're, we've always been a very kind of downtown group. And I think that downtown people are willing to try, I think people are used to expect to try kind of a wider variety of wines. I think people are, you know, as a rule, we will we'll always have guests who know exactly what they want and will order very particular things and expect to find it on our lists. I mean, like there are staples on our lists that have been on the list for like a steady part of the lineup for, you know, 15 or 20 years sometimes, you know. But uh, then there are plenty of people who are always, always willing to try something new. And, you know, I want to make sure we have those wines. I mean, I'm always, I, I want to have those out-of-the-box wines for people as well. But Blue Ribbon feels like one of those restaurants around so long that the line of where new is has changed several times over the course of it being open. Well said. Well said. I mean, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a tricky thing reconciling that, you know, from, because we have customers who have been literally dining there since the very, very night it opened. And that was 23 years ago, you know? It's, uh, so I think that, you know, for the industry people that still come in, I mean, the things that, that I see, you know, that I see them drinking over and over again. Um, Probably a lot of Beaujolais. Beaujolais. Muscadet. Muscadet, big time. Uh, certainly, you know, Jura wines, like, you know, they've they've come up in the world and they're still, I mean, I think they're still very much in fashion, particularly with like the industry crowd. And Oh, dude. Um, I mean. Yeah. I mean, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's what, you, I mean, you're almost expected to. Right. You know. um, although I don't get any Auvernois, so people will have to go elsewhere for Auvernois. Canary Islands, Etna, like those wines, I love, uh, you know, I've become like a big kind of island wine junkie in general. I just, I feel that the conversion of, and there's still places I haven't visited for them. You know, I've never been to Sicily. I've never been to Corsica, but I do love, I love the wines. And I, that, I don't think you're alone in that. I think that's the, part of the allure. Yeah. They're, th- those wines feel at the mercy of the elements in a way that other places are not, you know? And so, you know, you feel like, when you drink those wines, you feel the warmth of the sun, but you also feel the like, you feel the wind, you feel those like, you know, Mediterranean like storms. Sam Ehrlich of the Blue Ribbon Restaurants. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Levy. I really enjoyed this. Sam Ehrlich of the Blue Ribbon Restaurant Group. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Sean Connery was a member. I once managed to spill beer all over his, uh, his spectacles case. That was my, uh, how'd that go? Uh, you know, he said, he looked at me and he said, Well, if you can bring a napkin, I'll clean it up.